I have a little bit different kind of message today, and I think it's, we're going to use it to kick off a couple weeks of Sunday morning uh, a series. But I want to show you a picture first, and then we're going to do a little Voices of the Apostasy update. Uh, when BLM flared up and we started burning cities down in the name of justice, I started doing woke updates because that spirit moved like a revival, a demonic revival at that. Uh, that spirit moved like a demonic revival through our nation and everybody was bending a knee, kissing the ring, including a lot of major ministries. And that revealed what spirit they were really of because if you were led by the Holy Spirit, you couldn't participate in that. Arson is arson. And, uh, and if you couldn't see BLM's embezzling all those hundreds of millions of dollars, I got some beachfront property in Sparta I want to sell you. Great, a great deal on it. I mean, it's just great. It's even mine, if you'll believe me. Uh, I began giving woke updates, just pointing out the hypocrisy and the lunacy that was the two or three years of uh, cabin fever during COVID and BLM revival fire. And so we kind of transitioned away from that because I think the body of Christ got themselves reacclimated. It was almost like shell shock, like what just happened? And uh, then, then those who serve Christ got their feet anchored and realized, all right, that was a demon moving our nation. Uh, somebody said, what, what does the, the death of a black man at the hands of a mixed race unit in Minneapolis, how does that cause an Italian to bend a knee at Formula One in England? What, what, what is going on here? And even our missionaries in Uganda showed BLM protests in Uganda. They're like, what? Uganda is black. What is going on here? And they got arrested in Uganda too. So then we've had a transition away from that because it's old hat. And if you can't see it now, I can't help you. So what we've begun to do, we've only done maybe three, four, five of these is voices of the apostasy. And what we do is just show what the body of Christ is doing. We try to eliminate names because I'm not worried about exposing the preacher because they're not the problem. The demon they listen to is the problem. And we can expose the name and maybe they repent, maybe they don't. But we just want to point out. But I, my message this morning is a little bit more along the lines of really how much do we serve God? How serious are we really? And a couple years ago, I was traveling through, I think, the Chicago, one of the Chicago airports. There's two of them there, O'Hare and I think Midway. can't remember which one I was in. And I was walking to my concourse, and I saw movement out of the peripheral of my eye in what was like a closed gate area. And so I stopped, and I saw a guy. I thought he was doing a burpee at first. And then I stopped and realized he wasn't doing a burpee. He was a Muslim. And he had found a closed concourse, and it was a time for prayer. And he had rolled out his prayer rug. And here was a traveler, a Muslim man. That's not our faith. We don't promote it. We don't support it. Uh, they worship a demon. I want to be very clear on that. But I want us to hear the heart of this. Here's a man traveling. And it was at one of the times of prayer. Muslims pray toward Mecca five times a day, depending on what part of the world they're in and whether the hemisphere and the sun allows for it. But he had taken the time to find a private area to roll out his rug and worship his God without any concern of what anybody was thinking. And I was convicted. Because his prayer is not one that can be easily concealed. If he's going to be faithful to his God, he rolls out a rug, a prayer rug, and he bows towards Mecca and prays and does his thing. And I'm not mocking it. I don't even, under, I don't even know all they do. But we've, I think we have all familiar with the culture of it. And here he is in the Chicago airport, and it's time to worship God, and he does it. And here I am on a mission trip or coming from a conference. Who knows what I'm doing? I always, most of my travel is always ministry. And I'm not finding some place to go and prow, pray and bow before my God for 20, 30 minutes. I'm going to go sit somewhere, pop in a headphone, listen to some music or read a book. And I thought, really, what, what is the church even doing? So I'm, I'm currently right now in line with this. I'm looking at taking a trip to Saudi Arabia in January to do some stuff. And uh, Hannah sent me some information about the airline, uh, Saudi Airlines. And so she sent me some stuff to look at seat selections. And I noticed this. Throw this up here. Here's, an, here's a picture of an airline and the seat selection. And it looks like your typical, this is Saudi Airlines. Saudi Arabia is a Muslim country. It's a theocracy. You know, the royal family are Muslims. They're trying to modernize, but they are a Muslim country. One of the safest countries you could ever travel in because they don't tolerate crime at all. I was researching this Friday morning. 
I'm like, is it safe to travel to Saudi Arabia? All the websites, yes. Oh, yes, yes. Just don't violate their Muslim sensibilities. You're perfectly safe there because they have zero tolerance for any kind of crime. Yeah. All right, so I'm not worried about jihad. Just want to make sure it's okay for me because my white privilege doesn't extend there, you know. <laughs> but I noticed something looking at these airlines. Zoom in there for me, Schmitty. On this airplane, there's a prayer room. Zoom in again, Schmitty. Right back here in the back of the airplane, they've taken out what would be look like nine seats and made a prayer room because Muslims are committed to their God, good Muslims, and that no matter where they're flying, they're going to pray to their God at the appointed time of their God. Now, that's a Muslim nation's airline. What does the Christian nation airline have? Roving bars. Now, this really irritates me. Now, I, I commend them. I know a lot of Muslims. I, usually I sit, well, not usually. I, I've sat by a lot of Muslims on airplanes. I talk to Muslims in Africa a lot. Beautiful people. Their faith, they're very committed to. We could learn a lot about devotion from them. But the American church, I, man, I don't even know what we're doing anymore. Because it sure ain't the gospel and it ain't God. So I'm going to give you a voice of the apostasy update. Now, just keep in mind, here is a Muslim nation, Saudi Arabia. This is their national airline, Saudia, which is like Emirates is for UAE, United, United Emirates. And I've flown Emirates a couple times, never flown on Saudia. This airline has a prayer room in the back for Muslims to pray. And I guarantee you there's going to be, a, uh, there's going to be some kind of digital arrow in there pointing to where Mecca is so that no matter where they are flying, they can pray towards Mecca in line with their God's prescription. So what is our, what's the American church doing? Let's, let's show this little Saudi, excuse me, this woke, not woke, but voice of the apostasy. Shemitah, let's see this here. This is Sunday morning. That's Sunday morning. I don't really think the Apostle Paul was beheaded with that in mind. I don't think the Apostle Peter was crucified upside down with that in mind. I don't think children were burned at the stake in the second and third century so they could defend a church that looked like that trash. That's blasphemy. It's heresy, it's lunacy, and it's a mega church. And I just wonder what kind of, what do they do on mission trips? How does that sell in Mozambique? How does that sell in Colombia? How does that translate in Argentina or Papua New Guinea? It's heresy, and it packs a big house. So you, can, you contrast the Muslims who put a prayer room on an airplane so they can honor their God at 38,000 feet. And this is what packs them in now. And this is what the church will try to export because it, hey, works in America, right? Now, the reason you do that is because you've lost the Holy Spirit if you ever had him in the first place, and you've given up your dogma and theology if you ever had any in the first place. 
When you have theology and you have dogma and you have doctrine, they act as anchors that keep you from going anywhere near Super Mario. We're supposed to be the church of the living God, not the church of Nintendo. You know, we love God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy Ghost, not the God, Luigi, God, the Mario. Like, well, this is insanity. Sadly enough, uh, it was about eight or nine years ago, I was complaining to the Lord in prayer about how retarded the church was becoming spiritually. And the Lord spoke to me and said, the church will become an even greater circus than you have seen. I would have never guessed this, but that's what the Lord said was coming. And I, I would have hoped the Lord would have said, it will turn around, son. But there was no promise of that. He said, the church will become an even greater circus than you have yet seen. And he used the term circus because there's three rings in our connotation and different flavors of entertainment in each ring. And now look at this ring. And here's the fire juggle. And I look at this ring. Here are the singing girls. And I look at this ring. Here's the trapeze artists and the acrobats. And here's the dancing elephants and the, the lion tamer. I mean, that's what's coming. That's what's here. And we're not going to win the world for Jesus. We're actually going to usher in the Antichrist when that's our church. And that, his church is one campus of the biggest church in America. There's 85 or so campuses. I don't know. So I, I think if that's your campus, they're going to pipe in the main guy. But this is your opportunity to do something for your people, and you choose Mario. So it, it just grieves my heart. And one great man, Dr. Hilton Sutton, said years ago, people have lost the presence of God. They've lost track of the Holy Spirit. And so now they've resorted to every other means to attract people. And there's no healing in that. How do you even transition from that to the gospel? What have you done all week? You've not prepared a sermon. You've not prayed. You've, you've worked on the production. I don't know if you noticed, but there's an expensive camera that keeps swinging in the foreground of that because it's a production. Smoke. And how do you even get yourself into a video game and 8-bit digitize a persona of you as a little character and then interact. That's a lot of work. You don't have any souls to go win in your city? Like, you don't have any nursing homes to go preach in? You don't have any jails to go minister in? You're going to take your income and hire people to do this for you and call this the gospel? We cannot forget that there are people who we call brothers and sisters in Christ that are dying for a gospel that this moron and his church is mocking because it's cool and trendy and hip, and this is what the algorithm-led church wants. So we don't do any of that. We reject that. It's foolishness. So I thought, what greater way could I contrast Super Mario Church? I'm, I'm shocked that people just didn't stand up and walk out, but they've been conditioned to this. Next, next time, it'll be an even bigger shamwow and even less anything, and they'll just be slowly led into hell. When your church is the church of Super Mario and there's no gospel being preached, you're not converting anybody from anything to anything worthwhile. So I thought, let's talk about, let's throw this slideshow up. We're, I'm going to do a little bit of a PowerPoint. We're going to talk about the sacraments. Because what's the furthest end from Super Mario, but then to talk about something sacred and old school like the sacraments. And this is a term most of us in here probably don't even know. Because even the evangelical Protestants, in trying to be not religious, have gone so far as to untether themselves from some of the basic tried and true orthodoxy of the church. Now, if you're not interested in orthodoxy or theology, then you, you don't need to go to church. You can go find you a seeker-friendly, coffee-drinking, entertainment-driven, light show, skinny jeans, rockin'. You know, when you're church, you're not sure if you're in a nightclub or the house of God, you're not in a church. Let's just be really clear on that. And I'm going to keep taking a harder and harder stand on this because this is where it's going and what's beyond this. And what's, we showed you the roller coaster church a couple weeks ago. They put a roller coaster in their sanctuary. Uh, yeah. Anyway, let's talk about the sacraments because this is way more applicable than you can possibly understand with the first slide. And if I have any typos, forgive me. I built this this morning before Sunday school for what it's worth. So don't judge me if I misspell a word or two or three. I didn't have time to prove it. When we talk about the sacraments, we, as, especially Word of Faith Charismatics, 
We don't know anything about it because we're, we've, we for 30 years have tried so hard, 40 years to not be anything like religious. We've untethered things that were proven through 2,000 years of the church's history, through orthodoxy, through martyrdom, through councils, the Council of Nicaea, even the Catholic Council of Trent. All these councils where men way more intelligent than all of us in here combined sat and discussed doctrine and debated it. Like the Council of Trent, that wasn't like a weekend council. That was 17 years. You sit together and you work out and hash out theology, even if it's Catholic. For 17 years, you've worked every angle before you make a statement of faith. Modern churches today don't have statements of faith. They have belief pages. And there's a difference. Or values pages. Because statements of faith or doctrinal statements nail you to the wall with what you do and don't believe. But value page or belief page is a very broad amorphous kind of term where you're not going to nail us on anything. On our website, we've nailed down our entire doctrinal statement. You can know what we believe and the scriptures we use to back it up because this is what keeps us Christian. If we don't back it up with scripture, we're a Mario church. We're a super Mario Luigi entertainment driven cesspool. But we Listen, if you want entertainment, get it out there. If you want a concert, that's fine. Get it out there. I'm not against it. Movie, sure. But this is not what church is for. This is the house of the living God. So I want to introduce us as a church to the sacraments. And we may start referring to them as the sacraments, which is going to require a little bit of redemption on our part to not be afraid to call things a little bit more liturgical or sacramental. I mean, even the word sacrament sounds so far opposite from Nintendo. Sacrament sounds like sacred, sounds like holy, sounds like serious. Isn't that our God? Yes, there's a liberty in Christ, but we're talking about the creator of the universe. I'm not sure he wants to manifest in these last days through Mario. But you take your church that direction when your theology is a thimble deep and your time with God is minuscule. So let's talk a little bit about the sacraments. Sacraments comes from the Latin sacramentus. Probably also why Sacramento was called Sacramento. Probably has something to do with the Latin. We know a lot of the Catholic missionaries pushed out west. I'm just speculating right now. So this is where we get the term sacrament from the Latin sacramentus. This is the Greek equivalent of mysterion or the mysteries. So the sacraments have something to do theologically with the mysteries. Now, if you're a Bible student, and you should be because you go to this church, we're not an entertainment church, you understand that the word mystery is used in the Greek, mysterion, 27 times in the New Testament. There are many things that are spoken of as mysteries of the kingdom. Jesus told his disciples, unto you it is given to know the mysteries, plural, mysteries of the kingdom. Corinthians 14 says that he that prays in an unknown tongue speaketh out mysteries. Yeah. So there's a lot to the kingdom that is a mystery, an unspoken thing that only God himself can reveal. So from the Greek mysterion to the Septuagint, the Latin Bible, into sacramentus, we get the term sacraments. The New Testament speaks of mysteries 27 times. So sacraments are rituals or rites that reflect some of the New Testament's mysteries. Man, I don't even know what I would say to that pastor if I sat by him on an airplane. I'd probably witness to him and ask him, are you born again? Do you know Jesus? Then why would you hold Super Mario shebang in your church and call that the Sabbath? <laughs> The sacraments are rituals or rites that reflect some of the New Testament's mysteries. Not all of them, because they're still mysteries. One of the mysteries of the New Testament is Christ in us, the hope of glory. Another one is the resurrection of the dead. How do you reflect that? Well, the resurrection of the dead, we might be able to reflect that a little bit through something like water baptism, a resurrection of the dead. Protestants generally only acknowledge two sacraments, while high churches like the Catholic Church and the Episcopals, they recognize seven. So that's interesting. 
Why do we only acknowledge we're Protestants? If you don't know, quick church history, it was the Holy Catholic Church. Catholic just means general. The word Catholic just means general, but not, not like military general, but like just in general, the general church. They acknowledge seven. So during the Protestant Reformation, Protestant comes from the term protest when Martin Luther decided to protest against the Pope with his famous 95 Theses. Uh, he began what became the Protestant Reformation, and he said, this is what we believe and this is what we don't believe. Salvation by faith alone, not through works, indulgences, etc., that the medieval church, Catholic church, was really into. So now you basically have two forms of the church, uh, third, if you call it Eastern and Greek Orthodox. You have Orthodox, we'll say three, Catholic and Protestant. All right, you with me? Here's some theology. This isn't how to level up a still mushrooms from Mario's world, but this will benefit your Christianity. Now, under Protestants, we have everything that's not Catholic or Orthodox. That doesn't mean we throw all those guys out because they don't believe everything like us. Their faith tradition goes further back than ours does, though we do tie it all back to the Scripture. All right? So under Protestants, that became Martin Luther and Lutherans. And then from that became the Anabaptists and the Calvinists and the Zwinglis and all that through the medieval period, early Enlightenment era. And then that came into uh, what became the early Americas in, during the exploration period and the uh, uh, colonial era, era. So now the fast forward and you have Baptists and Methodists. And with the Pentecostal revival of Azusa Street, you gave birth to the Pentecostal movements of Church of God and Church of God in Christ and Assemblies of God. And then that gave way into Charismatica and then Word of Faith. And so now the body of Christ is fragmented 10,000 ways from the sundown. But we're still considered Protestants because we're not Catholic. We follow salvation by faith alone. So Protestants generally only acknowledge two sacraments, whereas the Catholics and the high churches, the Episcopals, some of the others that well, they call it smells and bells kind of church, that is incense and ring the bell. They call them smells and bells churches. They typically acknowledge seven. It would serve us well to know what a sacrament is and why Protestants only adhere to two of them and not seven and why. Now, I hope this to be just a foundational message, and then for the next couple Sunday mornings when I'm back in town, we'll cover maybe two or three of the sacraments. Honestly, I could take a Sunday or a month on each one of those and just teach on what the sacraments are and what's being reflected in them. And I, I hope to honestly draw us further away from America and further away from entertainment, further away from social media and further away from anything that is seeker-friendly or mega-church and bring us back to something that, pardon the word, is holy. Here's another, this is a bigger dirty word, reverential. Smaller word, because sometimes reverential is too many syllables. Sacred. I think God should be sacred. I mean, think about when he appeared to Moses, the first thing he said was, take your shoes off. That isn't, come here and give this bush a hug. I have dreams and plans for you. Get ready, get ready, get ready. Your best Tuesday ever. Moses turns aside to see this burning bush, and God Almighty speaks to him and says, take your shoes off. He doesn't say, I'm so glad you came. We're so glad you're here with us. We have a visitor pack for you. We have a guest bouquet, a guest bag. He's like, you're on holy ground. Take your shoes off because you've been stepping in sheep poop all day. It's dirt. No, but God's presence is there. Therefore, it's holy. And maybe these churches don't have a doctrine of holy because they don't have a doctrine of church presence. So why treat it as holy when there's no God there? So then if that's the case, then what they're doing is prostituting the name of Jesus and the, the word gospel to get people to come in because it becomes an industry. And if something's an industry, it's corrupt. There's no incorruptible industry on the planet. If there's money and people involved, there is corruption if God's presence doesn't steer the thing. So what is a sacrament and why do we typically only acknowledge two, if at all, and not the seven? What are the seven and why don't we maybe want to believe all seven are sacraments? Generally speaking, here's a general definition. A sacrament is a ritual that reflects or symbolizes a spiritual truth. A sacrament is a ritual, and the church has them, and they're okay. God ordained them. 
The question then becomes, how do we define them and which ones do we acknowledge as sacraments? Which ones did the Lord Jesus ordain and which ones maybe did the church, early church, Catholic church, medieval Catholic church, did they maybe develop in a, in a, for, for the reason of protecting it or keeping something sacred? But it's a, it's a ritual that reflects or symbolizes a spiritual truth. That's a general definition, something that's sacred, a sacred rite. Early Christianity didn't view a sacrament as a mere symbolic act, but as a sign that actualizes what it symbolizes. Now that's powerful, and you need to catch it. So we'll repeat it again. The early church, the early church fathers up through 4th, 5th century, they didn't view sacraments as mere rituals, you know, just something you go through the motions with. They viewed it as a symbolic act that actualized what it symbolized. This was no mere symbol. This actually activated what it symbolized. And I think you'll find you agree with that statement when we look at these in a minute. And again, we'll spend several weeks covering each one of these in depth. We'll look at them from the New Testament. We'll even judge some of the Catholic sacraments and say, is that something we want to incorporate? Some of them we already practice. We just don't call them sacraments. Uh, or is it something we need to maybe just look at from a different way? And I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to take us Catholic, so please trust me there, church. I'm not going to take us Catholic. But for everything they have going against them, there's a lot of stuff they have gotten right. I would also say for everything charismatics have going for them, there's a lot they've gotten wrong. I will also say I've been to a lot of Catholic masses in my life. I've never sat through one and cringed. I have never been in a Catholic mass and cringed. Didn't understand everything even if it was in Latin or English. But I've been in many, 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 many charismatic services, many word of faith services, and spent the whole service miserably cringing. So for all the Catholic Church has against it, it's got some things going for it, and for everything we think we've got for it going for us, all I have to say is look at the last 35 years of TBN. And look at where a charismatic Christianity and word of faith is now. I'm not taking us Catholic, but man, they've been hanging on to stuff for 1,500 years. And I would bet you'll never find a priest playing Mario in a Catholic church. It takes a special level of moronic Christianity to turn the altar of God into a 1988 Nintendo set. Without the ritual's performance, what this says is, no grace or power is made available to the believer. That's what that definition says. Without the performance of this ritual, there's no grace or power made available, which means the ritual is important. And by ritual, we just mean the act. And just so you understand, there's a lot of acts commanded in the Bible. Lift up holy hands, lay hands on the sick, baptize, preach the gospel, there's a lot of acts commanded, and if those acts are not obeyed, there's no power to confirm. So that definition I gave you, what it really means is without the performance of this ritual or this sacrament, there's no grace or power, we'd say anointing, available. So the, the sacrament, the act of the sacrament is actually the switch that kicks on the power, the grace, the anointing, the efficacy of God's hand. And this is what the Catholics believe. Well, now that I hear it, this is what I believe. Maybe I'm a little Catholic. <laughs> We're talking to Reverend Danny. He preached for us two weeks ago. He said he was preaching uh, at a youth camp and they got a whole bunch of the kids spirit filled, but he was asking the kids, Where, where's the Holy Spirit? Where's the Holy Spirit, kids? Where's the Holy Spirit? And he said, this little Catholic girl raised her hand and she said, the Holy Spirit's right here. She's making the mark of the cross. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. <laughs> You're not wrong, sweetie. But let's get them somewhere else, too. Let's get them inside you. <laughs> Another definition is that it's a ritual that acts as an avenue for God's grace. It's a ritual that acts as an avenue for God's grace. 
Now, again, this is going to be very important. And the more I come up with more of these um, voices of the apostasy that is the great falling away, the more I see the American church drifting away from our foundation, our orthodoxy. Orthodoxy just means what we have always believed. Ortho, the same, doxy, belief, doxa, doxology, as opposed to heterodoxy, which is different beliefs. The more we drift away from our orthodoxy, because honestly, most preachers today have very little theology and they don't read any of their Bible or theological books. All they do is read best church service ever and go to growth seminars and they just are led by the algorithm of social media or they're led by pragmatism, which says if it gets people here, it must be God. That's not... That's not how this works. I wonder if that's how they filled the Colosseums in the early day. It got people here. It must be God. Now, I don't think that's it at all. So a, a, a sacrament is a ritual, an act, a ceremony that acts as an avenue for God's grace. Now, when you read some of the high church, and that again, that's a very formal church, is the oldest churches with continuous lineage in the earth, you have to be able to translate their lingo. So they'll use the term grace a lot, which really is their term for the power of God, his help. So basically, no avenue, no grace, no ritual, no grace. Now, the, the churches, the early churches and the high churches also say that this, there's no power in the actual ritual. They acknowledge that. There's no power in the actual ritual. Your heart has to be right, they acknowledge. Your faith has to be right. Things have to be right. Otherwise, you're just going through the motions. They acknowledge that. They know there's no power in the water. They know there's no power in the performance of whatever. It's all dependent upon us. And the other thing they add, which is, I would not 100% debate, but I would find caveats in the scriptures. They also believe it has to be done in the presence of the body of Christ because of the power of the local fellowship. Because it totally undermines, now here's a doctrine that's going to be a little bit too far for most of us. It totally undermines this independent spirit of America. I can worship God as I want to. Me and God have church in the deer stand. No, you don't. You pass gas and fall asleep in that deer stand. You're not talking to Jesus up there. I have church on the bass boat. No, you don't. You drink beer. You get hammered. You get sunburned and you don't catch anything. You're a liar and a loser. Now, the early church said this, this, this stuff is done in the presence of the body because there's power in the body because we are one body and the Lord is the head of that body. And the church, Catholics specifically, and I, I was at a conference two years ago and I heard a lot of sermons that, man, were very convincing on the same subject that apart from church membership, there may not be salvation. And that comes back to the church, the ark of safety. Now, I'm not here to debate that. I'm not here to say if you skip church, you're going to hell. I'm not saying that. But we might say it this way as Baptists, though we're not Baptists, though I'm mostly Baptist. I'm like half Cherokee, half Baptist. A <laughs> little bit of beige foot. I'm palm colored. If you're truly born again, you want to be with believers because those are my people. If you're truly born again, I want to be in the house of God. If I'm truly born again, I want to see my family. If I'm truly born again, I want to do these things with the body of Christ. These things are Christ commanded. I want to do with his body. So maybe it's the chicken or the egg scenario. Which is it? But there, the Catholic Church holds a doctrine. I don't agree with it, that there is no salvation apart from the church. Please define that. Please give me 15 points of what you mean when you say that. But I want you to understand no avenue, no grace. And all the sacraments we're going to see are typically done in the presence of the body. Or maybe what we call a quorum, an immediate body. Uh, maybe not the full congregation, but at least two or three believers gathered together in his midst. It's an outward sign of an inward grace. That is uh, one of the early church fathers' definitions. I can't remember if it's John chrysanthemum or whoever, but that's one of the early church fathers' definitions of a, of a uh, sa uh, sacram uh, sacrament. It's an outward sign of an inward grace, and this is from the Catholic Church's catechism. It is a sacrament signifies God's grace in a, in a way that is outwardly observable to the believer. So it isn't just a ritual. Even the believer can say something's happened. 
something is different here. Now, again, I, I want to anchor us to this theology and doctrine because I don't want us to ever go anywhere near a place where we shoot T-shirts out of a T-shirt cannon because there are churches that do it. One of our Africans graduated and went to another city, and I said, have you found a church? He said, no, but I found one of the churches you're talking about. I said, what? He said, they shot T-shirts out of a T-shirt cannon during the warm-up of the service. And I said, well, did you get you one? Because <laughs> that's about all you would have gotten the whole service. When you make church look like a hockey game, you make church look like a Beyonce concert or a Lady Gaga concert, you've lost track of God. A sacrament signifies God's grace in a way that is outwardly observable to the believer. That is from the Catholic Church's catechism as of today. We depart from the Catholics in that they believe only ministers or priests can administer the sacraments. But I would say we only partly disagree with them. Because there are some sacraments we acknowledge only ministers can do. And we'll get into that when we talk about one of their sacraments called holy orders or taking holy orders. They believe only the, the ministers, the priests, can administer the sacraments. And I don't, I don't have a problem with that necessarily because it makes things a little bit more sacred. One of my friends, actually two of my friends, they said during COVID, they went and got themselves a priest collar to go visit their families in the hospitals. And he said, you wouldn't believe how much power the priest collar still holds in our nation. You walk in with the priest collar, even the nurses say, right this way, Father. Right this way, Padre. Right this way, priest. And so one of my friends is kind of stuck on wearing it because it gives him power everywhere he goes. It's like Lord of the Ring, ring around the collar right there. He's not a Catholic, but it gets, opens doors for him. We hold to the priesthood of all believers. That's why we, where we divert from the Catholics. We believe, according to the New Testament, we're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We're all priests called to make sacrifices and to minister the uh, ministry of reconciliation. We intercede for all people. We perform the role of Old Testament Levites, sacrificing to our God and worshiping our Lord and standing in the gap, applying the blood, pleading the blood of Jesus over people through prayer. So this is why we diverge. Now, here's a fancy word. Because of the sacerdotal association with sacraments, sacerdotal just means of or relating to priests. Because of the sacerdotal association with the word sacraments, Protestants and evangelicals often choose to call their rituals, ordinances, traditions, or rites. So most of the folks, you'll hear them talk about the ordinances of the church, or I think we've called them New Testament rites or rituals in this church. I'm going to start calling them sacraments again because I like the word and it doesn't rhyme with Nintendo. You just say the word sacrament and your heart walks a little more cautiously. I think it'll be good for us as charismatics to view some of what we do as charismatics as sacraments, because they are, because if we view them as sacraments, we won't take it so flippantly. And if we don't take it as flippantly, we might be able to gear down and engage some more faith into the act of it. Amen. So what are the seven sacraments, and why do evangelicals only acknowledge two, and how much might we agree with the Catholics? So what I'm going to do is we'll just go through these. We'll briefly talk about each one, mostly just to burn the rest of my preach time, because I'm not prepared to go into any more of them in a greater depth, though I probably could do it. Uh, I want us to look at these one by one, and we're going to apply the definition, and maybe off the top of my head we'll talk about some scriptures that might support it or undermine it on the Catholic list of a sacrament. I would say as of right now, I agree with five of these as sacraments that we need in our church. The other two we could probably debate and maybe we'll hash out when I have more time. So let's look at this list here. Here are the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church. These were codified at the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent is what the Catholics jump-started in answer to the Protestant Reformation. It's called the Catholic Reformation or the, 
uh, anti-reformation, there's a couple un-PC terms. You know, everybody can be offended if they want to be. This is why we choose not to be offended because we can choose to be victors or victims, but we can't be both. But you can actually offend some Catholics by calling it the Catholic Reformation or the Counter-Reformation. They prefer to have it called the Catholic Reformation because they don't want to see us being against anybody. But anyway, number one, baptism is considered a sacrament. So, Think about this. It is supposed to be a ritual that actualizes what it symbolizes. What that means is without the performance of the ritual, there's no power made available in the ritual. So let's ask the question real quick. Does baptism activate power? Yes, it does. Absolutely. Now, we could debate whether it's salvific. That is, does it save you from eternal damnation? This is where we would also diverge from the Church of Christ. Catholics also believe baptism saves. That's why they do infant baptism. But now they take it from doctrine, from scripture. When God says you and your whole household must be baptized, well, that would include babies, wouldn't it? So even in their stance, they have scripture to back it up. So baptism remits sins. We've had lots of testimonies. If you ever go back and watch some of the more supernatural water baptisms of the uh, Brownsville revival, those folks would go in that water, come up flopping like fish, demons coming out of them. It's just city tap water in a baptismal in an AG church. Without that going in the water under the hands of the presbytery or the minister, would that have happened? No. My dear friend, I shouldn't say dear, dear friend, the late uh, Dr. Pete Helton, who was a lifelong member of the Baptist church over here. He's in heaven now. He died last summer of COVID complications. He was about 180. How was Dr. Helton? Do you know him? 85, 88. He was one of my geology, my first geology professor. Uh, tremendous Baptist man, but also did a lot of missionary work in India and Zimbabwe. Actually lived in Zimbabwe for numerous, several years teaching at the American University. And, uh, when I first took over the church and we first went on television, I don't think we'd even been on, I had been on TV, but a couple months, I ran into Dr. Helton at Walmart. Dr. Helton, who I hadn't seen at that point in 10 years, I was surprised he remembered me. He looked at me, he said, Chris, I said, Dr. Helton, I didn't know if you'd recognize him. Of course, I just saw you on television the other day, me preaching. I said, did you get anything out of it? He said, no. I was wanting you to hurry up and go off so I could figure out what the weather was going to be, because that's... That tells you how much television influence we have. We're on like the weather station. And uh, <laughs> I thought, well, at least somebody's watching me. He's the only person that's ever said anything about me being on TV in this town in 15 years of being on TV. If that tells you anything at all, but yet we still do it because God said to do it. So he said, you need to come and go with me to Zimbabwe sometime. I said, why is that? He said, because the Baptists won't believe it. But when you baptize some of those converts, they come up, demons come out of them when they come out of the water. So that was our conversation in Walmart by the TVs. <laughs> Those demons wouldn't have manifested had they not gone in lake water, river water, in the bush of Zimbabwe, because that's where he was ministering as a geology professor and a Baptist missionary and demons coming out of people. So does baptism activate power? Absolutely. There's a lot more to it than just water. One of our own church mamas, Miss Vera Hunter, who's been in heaven for probably 10 years now, she liked to tell the story that when she got water baptized over here, when she first converted to Christianity, she said, I went in that water, and when Pastor Vaughn brought me up, she said, I opened my eyes, and the water had this black oil on top of it. And she said, I know Pastor Vaughn saw it because his eyes got really big as he like looked back and forth. She said, I don't know what it was. I said, Miss Vera, I think it's the Lord washing your sins away, because that's what the Bible says it does. Be baptized for the remission of sin. So here we have an example, a sacrament. This is one of the only few, two, that evangelicals acknowledge. It's a ritual that makes power available, that if you didn't do the ritual, you'd be devoid of the power. Amen. So we'll go into more depth when we talk about baptism whenever I'm back in town. Holy Eucharist. That's not like an expression, like holy Eucharist. <laughs> That's a traditional way of saying communion. Because Eucharist in Greek means thank you. Thanksgiving. You can mock the Holy Eucharist, but it's what they have for 2,000 years called the communion meal. It's Thanksgiving. Because you begin by giving thanks. In the middle you give thanks. And when you're done, you give thanks to God again. Yeah. 
So they call it the Holy Thanksgiving. And we call it communion or cup and wafer time. You know, you think about how sacrilegious we get with some of it. I appreciate the fact that they maintain a reverence for the cup and the body. Uh, in fact, most of your, like your Episcopal church over here at the Catholic church, they'll advertise when they serve the Eucharist. Uh, the Episcopals, they always abbreviated H-E for Holy Eucharist. If you don't know what they're abbreviating for, like he, he at 8.30, what's that mean? He, Holy Eucharist. So let me ask you this. Does communion make power available? You better believe it does because the Bible says if you don't do it right, you get sick. Corinthians 11 says if you don't partake worthily, you get weak. I mean, there's so much power available in Holy Communion that if you do it wrong, you could die prematurely according to the teachings of the Apostle Paul. Remember, Paul wasn't just about prosperity and healing. He wasn't just about your best Thursday ever. He taught that the communion meal could kill you or it could heal you. So we participate and partake worthily. So absolutely, that's a sacrament because it's a ritual. We have form. We do it very organized and it makes power available that wouldn't be available if you didn't participate. So also, just so you know, early church, early, early church history, it was called a love feast and it was a total recreation of the last supper and it would last all day. And so Jude talks about it. Corinthians talks about it and that they couldn't just wait to get to church to have a love feast. And so Paul had to bring some balance to it. That's why he says in the end of first Corinthians chapter 11, if you're hungry, eat at home but don't come and engorge yourself on the love feast, which we think of love feast as some kind of big you know, potluck, but it was what they did symbolically to represent the Lord's last supper. But he said, don't come here if you're hungry, eat at home, which is what I now say for all the churches with the buffets during service. If you're hungry, eat at home. You can't fast between breakfast and lunch. If you need coffee, drink it before you walk in the door. You know, If everybody brings a tumbler and a cup of water and a coffee, my goodness, our bathrooms are going to be running 24-7 while we're preaching in here. Between prostate issues and diuretic issues and, I don't know, I think caffeine's a little bit of a laxative too. Some of you guys have to go make heavy in between services. There's your revelation and your epiphany. Huh. Penance. This is one we might debate. I appreciate the heart of the high churches behind the concept of penance. This is, I'm just giving you the seven sacraments of the Catholics. 17 years they debated some of these things. It's a long time to debate before you make your official statement. That's kind of an obedience to be quick to hear, slow to speak. 17 years is a little slow to speak, but it shows you that they were at least obedient to that commandment. Penance the heart behind the, the concept of penance is this, and this is what I think is so beautiful and we miss out on. Sin, they say, I would agree, doesn't just separate you from God. Sin damages your soul. So yes, we repent. Yes, we confess our sin. Yes, we have restoration of our relationship with God, but that doesn't necessarily fix the damage we've done to ourselves. So penance, and this is where we'll begin to disagree, are acts assigned to them by the priest that they can go do to help bring healing to their soul. And it might be 10 Hail Marys. It might be community service. It might be caring for a widow or an orphan. And that's where it gets into works. Some folks even go beyond what a priest will prescribe them and say, I, I appreciate that. I feel like what I did was so bad. I want to do even more. And that does get into the ditch of works. But I don't think they believe that that works is going to cause them to be any more forgiven. They believe it's a penance. They're repaying the damage they've done, which I can appreciate it. We're all guilty of it. We all feel like I, did, I was so mean to my wife or my husband, I'm going to go to church and serve those babies even better than I ever did before. Well, why not give it your best regardless? So this is what we'll, de we'll debate this a little bit more in the coming weeks as we get into these. But this is one of their sacraments because without the ritual, there's not power made available uh, to the believer. Confirmation. Here's another one we might debate a little bit. This is another very Catholic, very Lutheran, very Methodist thing. How many of you went through Catholic confirmation with whatever church? 
Yeah, a lot of hands going up. I don't have a problem with confirmation. I'm not sure I would call it a sacrament. We'll discuss this more in the future. But confirmation is a class you go through. It's to confirm your confession of faith. It's to make sure you understand the doctrines. It, I, I'm all for that. We call that discipleship. But some churches consider it a coming of age, almost like a bar mitzvah. And again, every denomination on that spectrum of Christianity sees confirmation a little bit differently. The Catholics happen to hold to it as a sacrament because when you go through the ceremony officiated by a minister, it makes power available to you. It makes you part of the official church. All right, that's how some of the denominations, Methodists, Lutherans, perhaps, or Reformed churches will even do it. That's how they view it. I'm just giving you the list and a little bit of say-so on each one. Holy orders. I like the way that sounds. It just... Again, some of these, it almost sounds like something bad just happened, and you're like, holy orders, holy Eucharist. <laughs> Don't do that. You'll offend a brother or sister in Christ. Holy moly, holy Toledo. That's not on the list, but it might be, need to be. Holy orders, to take holy orders is ministry of ordination or ministry ordination. We would totally agree with that as a sacrament because the Bible tells us so, and the Bible speaks of the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. The Bible speaks of being ordained or established or set in. And uh, uh, Timothy, Timothy, and Titus talk about setting or ordaining elders in every city. That is holy orders or ministerial ordination. It's a sacrament. It puts an anointing on you that wouldn't be on you until hands were laid upon you. This also really undermines all the startup preachers, all the vagabonds, all, I'm not cussing, but all the bastard ministries, fatherless ministries. In our nation, and I go to Africa a lot, it's this way in Africa, you can just rent a space, advertise, call yourself a pastor, and the dumb little sheep will come running. So we always ask, who's your father? Who ordained you? Do you have a ministerial association? Do you have a denomination? Did you go to a seminary? Do you have ordination papers? Who put you here? This is definitely a sacrament. It is a sacred ritual that makes power available that would not be available had you not performed the ritual. So we've done it here when we've laid hands on the Andrews to ordain them as pastors. We've done the same with our elders. We do the same with our deacons. We've done the same with the Scudders when we sent them off to be missionaries to Uganda. And then later, about four or five years ago, five years ago, when they became pastors, we laid hands on them. It was a worship practice night. And I needed to lay hands on them to ordain them into the pastoral ministry. Miss Kylie was on the guitar. I had her play Agnes Day. And when the anointing manifested, I laid hands on Brett and Bobby right here. And the power of God knocked them down. They fell out. And I could totally perceive the pastoral gifting and a tangible anointing come upon them. And Brett got up and he told me, he said, I feel different. I feel different. I said, that's the pastoral ministry because you're going to go back to Uganda now and pastor this church through COVID. And that's what they did. But that goes back to the Catholic definition, even the early church definition. It's a ritual that makes a power available that would not otherwise be available if we hadn't done it. And it's a grace that is tangible to the receiver. An outward ritual that causes a grace to be tangible to the one who received it. And that's what Brett testified. I feel different. So absolutely, we would say ministry ordination is a sacrament. And we're going to start calling it as such and treating it as such. We're not going to take it flippantly. All right, next one, extreme unction. That almost sounds like some kind of intestinal issue. <laughs> but I want you to know Catholic lingo, because I've heard all these terms and had to look them up. Extreme unction just means laying hands on the sick, anointing with oil. That's a sacrament, and we would totally agree with that, because... You call for the elders. They lay hands on you. They anoint you with oil. The prayer of sick shall save the sick. The Lord shall raise them up. And if they committed any sins, they shall be forgiven them. Now, the reason they considered a sacrament, because honestly, they think only the priests can do these. And their reasoning for this one is James 5. James 5 says elders. It doesn't say laity. Now, Mark 16 says laity, but James 5 says elders. The other key that Catholics tie to it is that it says, and if they have forgiven any sins, they shall be forgiven. Well, only the priests can absolve sin, so that's why they take such a strict stance on this. I would teach you, and we'll get into it when we cover it in the future, lay hands on anybody you need to who permits you to. Get permission first. Don't be weird. Don't chase them down. Let me get a hand on you. And they call a 911. I got some weird nut zealot. 
if they arrest you, I'm not your pastor. Because <laughs> in this town, the cop's going to probably know me because I'm their chaplain. You don't go to my church. Say you go to Pastor Scott's church. I go to First Baptist. <laughs> He's a chaplain too. But if you ever get in trouble, your pastor's name is Scott McKinney. <laughs> Scott McKinney. It's another Scotch-Irish name, different guy altogether. He's from Georgia. He's a peanut farmer. I'm not from Georgia. I'm not a peanut farmer. Scott. I'm going to have to practice it. You know, look at your neighbor and say, Scott McKinney. Don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> Anointing the sick with oil. That is a sacrament. It's a ritual. We do it in order. We get the holy anointing oil. We, we get the elders down here. We have them come down here. We probably need to take it maybe a little bit more serious. I don't, not that I take it flippantly, but looking at Nintendo Church, I think I want to take everything a little bit more serious because I don't want to be anything like that kind of church. I don't want to, I'm not even comfortable watching that video. I've watched the video three times now. It makes me sick at my stomach every time. I don't want to be legalistic. We're not going to wear some giant palpal hat and look like a chess piece. We're not going that far. But if the option is that, put on a Mario hat, the Pope is dope. Give me a Pope hat. <laughs> if a cleric's collar unlock a COVID ward, give me a cleric's collar, man, and a robe. I look like Neo from the Matrix. Just go in there and lay hands on people. That's a little disrespectful, maybe a little bit, but my friend, Pastor uh, Father Nunez, who's the Brazilian priest, he wore that little matrix outfit. He looked bad. I thought, man, you make ministry look good. He just, you don't know if he's going to come cast out a devil, rub a rosary, or do jujitsu on you because he just, he looked tough in that little outfit. <laughs> Marriage. This blows my mind. Marriage is a sacrament. Because only a minister, only a minister, not an Elvis impersonator in Vegas, you whore. Only a minister. There's even a big debate. Should the city even be involved in my marriage license? Why does the government need to have a certificate of my marriage if I did it in the house of God before the people of God and the man of God? Why, why do I need to register with the county? Now, I'm not here to fight that fight, but it's between me and my God and a holy man of God. The Catholics hold to marriage as a sacrament. I have been a Christian 40 years. I have never heard taught marriage as a holy sacrament. Why have the Catholics held to that for 1,500 years? Is there a grace made available when the minister says, by the power invested in me, I now pronounce you husband and wife. I now give you permission to kiss your bride. Is there not a grace that comes upon you to be a husband and a grace that comes upon you to be a wife? That if we had not gone through the ceremony, you'd just be fornicating dogs? You better believe that's a sacrament. And it's the only one of the seven that the scriptures actually calls a sacrament. Because Paul says, I show you a mystery. I speak concerning Christ in the church. Mysterion. This is the one that is literally a sacramentus, a sacrament a ritual performed by a man of God that it makes power and grace available to those who are participating in it. And that one, we even treat like a sacrament, though we don't even realize it because we make the biggest ceremony out of it. And it is super legalistic. You have to rehearse that thing. And everything's decorated just so. And everything's run through it. Okay, let's do it again. If, if you're Miss Molina or Miss Melissa in this church, you make us run through it 15 or 20 times. All right, pastor, are you okay? I'm good. I've done this like for 15 years now. Let's do it again. All right, and then you come here and you stand here and everything is like duck, 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 super legalistic. And then everybody just cries. The whole service is beautiful. It's so beautiful. You may kiss the bride. No, that's an ugly bridesmaid, but you may kiss the bride. Oh. Everybody's got to have an ugly friend. Oh, just. It is a sacrament with high ritual. And we make the biggest deal out of it. And yet it's beautiful. Nobody ever sees a wedding as legalistic. But I can tell you, doing ministry now in this church, 16 years, we don't rehearse anything like we do a marriage ceremony to get everything just right. They make me rehearse my lines. I read them the same ones over and over again. I can do this almost with my eyes closed. And yet we do it to honor God. 
We take them over here to a table. We always lay hands on them. And we, I lay hands on them. I use all the authority I know I have as a minister to use that authority of a ministry gift to make the pronunciation, the pronouncement. I now pronounce you. We don't even say the state of Tennessee anymore. I'm not really invested in them. By the power of God, I pronounce you husband and wife. Elvis can't do it. So that brings up a debate, and, and we'll, we'll get into it. If the Bible says, what God hath joined asunder, let no man divide, does that mean there are some marriages God has never joined? How about you have three concubines? Was God instrumental in joining those? You got two wives. What if you were part of a cult? What if it was an Elvis impersonator? What if he joined you? Does God even honor that? If, if you're committed to each other, would it not be wise to come and be rejoined by someone who doesn't look like Elvis? Or someone who didn't get their ministry certificate off the internet? These are thoughts. And this is where I say, man, Catholics, for all their issues, they got some things buttoned down pretty tight. And we as charismatics, word of faith, we were just so afraid of becoming religious or legalistic, we became rebellious and Nintendoed. So we're going to spend several weeks looking at each of these seven sacraments. The, two I would only, the only two I would debate right now would be penance and confirmation. And it may be we apply different titles and redefine them. But I think every one of these, other than penance and confirmation, honestly, all of them we do at some capacity in this church already. We know we baptized. We know we do Holy Communion. Ministry ordination, we do, whether it's elders and deacons or five-fold ministry gifts. We lay hands on the sick anytime somebody calls for it, and then we have healing lines as well. Of course, we do marriages. So that leaves penance and confirmation, and confirmation is discipleship with just a graduation point. And penance is, I acknowledge I damaged my soul. I did more damage than to just God, and I need to make it right. So what, what does that interpret as? So there's a lot more to this, and I want us to be tethered in as many places as we can to the Word of God so that we don't ever risk putting a roller coaster in our sanctuary or Mario on the Jumbotron or whatever nut job freak show entertainment gimmick the church comes up with next. I'm glad we don't have to worry about outdoing the last whiz-bang summer at the movies. We can just get closer to the presence of God, get more of his anointing in here, become cleaner and holier, understand his scriptures better. Like, what does Sunday school look like in Mario Church? What does door-to-door -door evangelism look like in Mario Church? What does the prayer service look like in Mario Church? Can they even cast out a demon? Will a demon even manifest in their church? And if that's from the pulpit, what kind of sins are permeating among the people? If that's the pulpit time, if that's, I mean, Sunday morning is your biggest service. It's when you have the most visitors. It's when those who are actually somewhat a little hot for God show up. That's what you give them. What's really growing under the surface? What's in the marriages? What's on their iPhones? What's on their Galaxy tablets? What's really going on? What's really growing into their hearts? I'm going to do everything I can to keep us spirit-led, Holy Ghost-filled, and also tied to sacred things. Because bring it back to Moses as we close here. The Holy Ghost is burning a bush. And the first thing was, this is holy, respect it. This is holy. And he wasn't going to say anything until Moses kicked his shoes off. Then, once he obeyed holiness and manifested reverence, God began to speak about a plan for his people. Amen. What if Moses said, that feels legalistic. It feels a little religious. Why can't I keep my shoes on? Shut up. Take your shoes off. See what God says next. Is it so hard to take your sandals off? That might be a good evangelistic message. Is it so hard to take your sandals off? Now, I tell you, I told you I was wrapping up. I lied because... We're going to practice penance here in a second. <laughs> One of my friends, Pastor Tim, just the power of that statement, take your shoes off. He was at a revival up on Cumberland Plateau a couple weeks ago. And I said, well, how was the revival? It's at a Baptist church. He's Assemblies of God. It's a Baptist church. The revivalist was UPC, United Pentecostal. It's oneness, hair in a bun, Aunt B, Pentecostalism. 
He said, it was wild. I said, well, how wild is wild? He said, you ever been in a shoe throwing service? And I said, I never even heard of a shoe throwing service. He said, not me either. He's Pastor Chris. I've been in a lot of wild Holy Ghost services, never been in a shoe throwing service. I said, yeah. I said, well, how does that even happen? He said, the preacher gets to preaching about the holiness of God at the tree of God and take off your shoes. This is holy ground. And people got under so much conviction, they began to take their shoes off and throw it at the altar under the conviction that this is holy ground. Take your shoes off and honor God. Now, we don't make a doctrine out of it, but I'm like, okay, I could totally see a shoe throwing service. I thought they were just getting mad and throwing it at each other. <laughs> not that we aim to have a shoe throwing service, and I'm not saying we're going to have one tonight, but the point is you, you honor God in whatever way he requires of you, and I don't think putting Super Nintendo on your Jumbotron and then wrapping a lame 80s wrap I'm telling you, man, if you got dredge, you can do better than that lame 80s rap. That's not holiness. And I want holiness. And I know you do too. So next couple Sunday mornings, I won't be here next Sunday morning, but after that, we'll start looking at each one of these from a New Testament perspective, and we'll see what power is made available and how we can expect them to change. Because if I teach on it, it'll build your faith to receive power for baptism, power for communion, power for uh, confirmation, power for ordination, power for anointing the sick, power for your marriage. If I teach on it, you'll say, well, this is what's available. I want more of that. And it'll help us. All right. We learned something this morning. Amen.